0: I want to just start by reading verse 1. This is what it says. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying... Right there, we should be able to tell that we're mid-story, right? This is an awkward beginning to a book, but it's because it's not really a beginning. Um, In the Hebrew... This book actually begins with the word and. So does Exodus, so does Numbers, so does Deuteronomy. In fact, so does Joshua. The first six books are one continuous running narrative. They're connected. Uh, The title, Leviticus, uh, comes from the Latin Vulgate, um, and it's probably easy to put together where the title comes from, although it's not uh, the way we would parse things in English. They've taken this idea of the tribe of Levi, and so this is the Levites things, right? That's what this book is. But the original Hebrew title, the one that the Jews still recognize today, is just The Lord Called, the first opening words of this book. Now, not only... um, Not only is it helpful to remember that we're in the context of a story here, but the manual that is the book of Leviticus that walks through the ins and outs of Israel's worship, you have to keep in the context of Israel's God. If you just jump right into the offerings and sacrifices, as we'll do tonight, without recalling the God who's commanding these offerings, without recalling what's just taken place in the book of Exodus, um, you're, you're liable to go astray. The reason I point that out is because what we've learned in Genesis and Exodus is that God is the creator, that for Israel, God is their deliverer, the one who brought them out. Of Egypt. He's the one who's been tremendously merciful with them despite their sinfulness and rebellion. And on top of that, this is the God who desires to dwell with his people. And so, especially as we look at the free will offerings tonight, you have to keep it in the context of who it is that they desire to make these offerings to. They're free will offerings. They're not required. They're if you would like to worship God, this is what it should look like. And so it's important that we keep the character and the work of God in the background for this. We'll touch on that more specifically in a moment. The second thing that's important context-wise here is that it says that he spoke to Moses from the tent of meeting. Now that's also known as the tabernacle and it was just finished in its assembly at the end of the book of Exodus. And so the last thing that happens in the book of Exodus, in fact, turn back a page, it's worth looking at, is the tabernacle is assembled for the first time on the first day of the year, on the first day of the Passover celebration. And it's dedicated and it says, uh, verse Thirty-three. He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So the good news we see here is just as God has desired and promised, he is now dwelling in the midst of his people. The entire purpose of the tabernacle being built and being built to a particular plan was because God desired to be with his people. So that's the good news. The bad news is as soon as God is there, it kicks the holiness standard up a notch. And so Moses can't even enter into the tabernacle. Remember, this is Moses who was not part of the idolatrous worship. This is Moses who uh, who spoke with God on the mountaintop, but now even he can't enter in. The Leviticus opens answering a problem that we find here at the end of Exodus, that now God is there. It's one thing for God to dwell with his people, but what does it look like for the people to enter into that reality, to dwell with their God, to enjoy his presence. Leviticus as a whole begins to address and answer that work, uh, to answer that question. And so here God speaks not from Mount Sinai as he has been in Exodus, but from out of the tabernacle and he begins to to explain how it is that Israel and the priesthood are going to enter in to the tabernacle, enter into worship, enjoy the presence of God. And so he speaks in verse two, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord. Now, here's a challenging thing about the first few opening verses of Leviticus. It's kind of like when you write an outline for a paper. And so you have the title and then you have point or uh, heading one. And then under that you have subpoint one and they all just are right after another with no space. It's the same thing here. And so the book is introduced and it's introduced broadly saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, that actually applies to a whole lot more than the first chapter. Uh, And then when it says here, when anyone brings an offering to the Lord, that introduces the first section of Leviticus. And so The whole of Leviticus is speaking to the people, which is interesting. We call it Leviticus because it deals with the priests, but this is not a secret manual. This is not a private uh, employee handbook for the priesthood. It's a public document that all of Israel should be acquainted with, and as we'll see tonight, a good deal of the tabernacle uh, worship involves participation of the men and women of Israel, the non-priests, the normal people. And so when he says speak to Israel and say to them, that introduces the book broadly and then he hones in. The first topic is the offerings and sacrifices. This takes up the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus. And so he says, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And then it says, if his offering is a burnt offering. So this is offering number one. Leviticus 1-7 through provides five different offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the restitution offering. And then chapters 6 and 7 walk through them again, instead of being from the people's side, from the priest's side, uh, so that the priest understands their role. These are not the only offerings offered in Israel. We'll also come across the festival offerings, like, for example, the specific offering of the Day of Atonement. Um, Some of these offerings are not sacrifices, meaning involving blood and death, but offerings in the basic sense, like the grain offering, and there are other grain offerings, so, for example, if there was a possibility of infidelity in a marriage, there was a grain offering that could be brought uh, to the priesthood to figure out if infidelity had taken, case, uh, taken place. That's not what it's talking about here. There are offerings for the installing of priests, offerings for festivals like Passover. Um, there are the tithes. All of those things are going to be dealt with elsewhere, These offerings are the basic offerings of the common people of Israel. These are the ones that over the course of your life, you would regularly offer. The first three, the ones that we'll look at tonight, are known as the free will offerings. They're not uh, brought because they must be brought. They're brought because you desire to bring them. And then the second two, the sin and the offering of recompense, are things that you need to bring when things go wrong. Okay, and so in response to your own sin, you bring those two offerings. But the, the five of them together um, are kind of the, uh, the sum total of Israel's basic worship at the tabernacle. The first one here is listed as the burnt offering. Now, the word here that comes before offering, this little adjective, burnt, uh, in the Hebrew doesn't actually mean burnt at all. It comes from a root word that means to ascend, the reason it says burnt is because of the, uh, the prevalence of the King James Bible. And so in the King James Bible, the burnt offering is the burnt offering, and when we get to chapter two, the grain offering is the grain offering, but both of those words clearly have other meanings. But modern translators know better than to fight against the precedence of the King James Bible. And so instead of of making a stink out of it, they, they just maintain what people expect to find in these chapters. But what the word actually means here is to ascend. And so the emphasis is not on the fact that this offering was wholly consumed, although that's true. It's on the fact that the smoke of this wholly consumed offering ascends. That's the name of the offering, the offering of ascension. Okay, Now, it tells us about this offering uh, as it continues. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd. Look at verse 10. If his gift is a burnt offering from the flock. Look at verse 14. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds. You see how the chapter is organized? There's different possibilities to offer for the burnt offering. And there's unique instructions for each category. So, from cows and cattle from flocks, as in sheep and goats, or from birds. And so the offering here uh, starts by walking us through the offering from the herd, cows and cattle. So what does it say? It says, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that it may be accepted before the Lord. Okay. Now I want you to notice who the pronoun is here. The he or it just as likely could be a she here. The he or she is the worshiper, right? So if anyone in Israel desires to offer a burnt offering, let them bring from the herd a male without blemish. And then notice it says that that's important, that it may be accepted before the Lord, okay? And so both the gender of the animal and the quality of the animal is not up to, um, up to compromise, This is a requirement. If you bring a cow, it must be a male without blemish. Now, why male? This is actually a little bit difficult to determine in the modern sense, but here's the best guess that commentators can give. Males are the more valuable because of breeding, okay? And so when it requires it to be a male here, it's emphasizing cost, okay? In other words, not merely a female, of which you have many, of which there's replaceable, but a male, the more costly, the more valued in Israel. And so we see here that the offering is to be a costly offering. And it's worth remembering two things here. First, we're talking about a whole cow. Okay, so this is more than just a couple of steaks for you know twelve ninety nine at the grocery store. This is an entire cow. That should be, get us thinking already about the cost of this. But I want you to also go back to the the times of Israel, where meat eating and the availability of meat and the size of your herds. You know, there's no McDonald's. Uh, there's this massive cow farm on I five if you travel down into California right as you get into the big valley where you find Bakersfield. I don't know what it's called. We always call it Cowschwitz. What's it called? Right, in the Central Valley. Valley. Um, so just south of Sacramento, you come across this just massive cow farm. I mean, it's just cows for miles, side by side by side. Not just fields full of cows, just tons of cows. Um, that's not this world, Right? This world, it's talking, about, um, it's talking about a time when meat is not something you enjoy very regularly, uh, where this cost is extensive. Okay? It also says that it needs to be without blemish. And so it's not to have any sort of disability. It's not, as we'll find out later, supposed to have any sort of birthmark or bruising. It's not supposed to have anything that would be substandard. Okay, so this is USDA choice beef that we're talking about here. Um, and the reason for this, as we'll see, is because this whole sacrificial system is symbolic. And so the standards that are set here don't have so much to do with the cow as they do with the picture that's being created. Are you familiar with the word liturgy? Or the concept of something being Liturgical? Now, our our church, we don't have much liturgy in the way that we go about our services. Probably the most liturgical thing we do is the act of communion. But if you go into other churches, for example, the German church where we meet in, if you attend their service, many aspects of the service are not merely something you hear, but something you do, something you go through the motions of. Uh, The worship of Israel was to be embodied worship. When we partake of communion, we don't merely mentally reflect on Jesus' sacrifice. We partake of the bread. We drink the cup, right? We partake of it anew. We embody the reality of what God has done for us in Jesus. The sacrificial system is set up in the same way. It's embodied worship, But it's worth remembering that when we get to the New Testament, it says that the tabernacle, the priesthood, the whole sacrificial system all pointed to the work and person of the Messiah. And so that's why Peter in 1 Peter refers to Jesus as a lamb without spot or blemish. He recognizes the significance of this, that the offering that we need to offer needs to be a perfect offering, specifically because we are imperfect. Specifically because we are not a man or a woman without blemish. And so our offering needs to be perfect or it's just an offering that needs another offering, right? Ad uh, ad infinum. And so it's to be a male without blemish, without any sort of thing that would diminish its value or disqualify it. Now as we read over what's done here, I want you to pay attention. Some of the things that are done are done by the offerer. And some of them are done by the priest. There's a division of labor here. And as you read, you'll see how this lays out. And so he brings it to the tent of meeting. And what does it say? Um, Verse four, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the side of the altar that's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And so notice here that it begins with the offerer doing two things. He lays his hand on the head of the animal and then he takes its life. Not the priest. There are other sacrifices where the priest is the one who takes the life of the animal. But here with the burnt offering, it is the offerer that kills the animal And then it's the priest that manipulates the blood, that takes the blood of the animal and scatters it around the altar. Now, it's worth pausing here. Um, In the modern age, many people have become vegans or vegetarians because of concern about cruelty to animals. And so reading this can almost be tremendously shocking. I don't think it's as shocking as human sacrifice, but it bothers the modern conscience. And I just want to point out to you that it should, that that's intentional, that the reality of an innocent animal suffering for a sinful human being is intentionally offensive because sin is offensive. Like I said, this worship is liturgical. It's embodied. It shows us, what we don't always see. It helps us to think through what's not always at the forefront of our minds. And if you go all the way back to Genesis, there's a direct correlation between sin and what? Death. And that death is not merely physical, but also a separation from the God who is life. And so the burnt offering here is an offering of one death, in the place of another life. In fact, that's why it says here that he shall lay his hand on the head of the animal. As a side note, the word here for lay is not touch lightly, but actually to lean on. Okay, it's a strong word. And so you are are actively involved, but what is the symbolism here? What is going on? The recognition is one of identification. In fact, the concept of laying on on of hands flows through the Old Testament into the New Testament, and even when we uh, ordain pastors in this church, we follow the practice of the early church in the laying on of hands. It's identification. And so what the offer is saying as they lay their hand on this animal is that this animal is operating on my behalf. It is standing in place of me. And that's in two ways. One is the death and the other is the smoke. We'll talk about them both. For the sin offering that we'll cover later, when you do this, you would actually lay your hand on the animal and you would verbally confess your sins and then you would take the life of the animal. And I want you to recognize tonight that the average Israelite would do this countless times over the course of their life. Josephus says during the high festival days, like Passover, that the offerings would be so many in number that blood would flow down the streets. Okay? The correlation between sin and its consequence in your life, in the life of people around you, in the effect that it has on our environment, is inescapable in the sacrificial system. And that's intentional. In fact, notice what it says. He shall, uh, look again, verse 4, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him. In other words, accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Okay. Now, the word for atonement comes from another word that occurs very often in the Old Testament that's often translated as ransom. Okay. And so when it says he shall make atonement, it's talking about the result of a ransom. And that's a word we need to stop and talk about tonight because for us, a ransom is something, you know, that when, a, when somebody takes a hostage and then, you know, cuts up a Cosmo magazine and sends out a letter in the mail, that's what they're after is a ransom, right? A ransom in here is similar in the fact that it's, it's money. It's something in the place of. But here's the other part you have to understand. When you look at how a ransom is used in the Old Testament, maybe one of the most helpful examples is what happens if an ox that belongs to you gores a person and they die. We saw this back in the book of Exodus. It explains if that happens, first off, the life of the bull is forfeit. But if the bull was known to gore, in other words, he has a propensity to cruelty. In other words, it's direct responsibility of The owner who didn't do what he needed to do in putting the animal down and keeping it chained up and whatever, and so it's really his fault that somebody got hurt. It says that his life is forfeit as well. However, the family who's experienced the loss, the victim of the goring, can offer up a ransom price instead. And if that's paid, then that's taken care of. And so, what we have to understand about a ransom is, first, in the Hebrew idea, your life is already forfeit, okay? It's a lesser penalty offered in place of what you actually deserve, okay? Second, it's set, the quality of the ransom, the value is set by the victim, okay? And so, the idea here brought into this idea of this offering-making atonement is that God freely chooses to take or to accept the life of this animal instead of your life. Okay, that's what atonement means. And so, what we have to recognize here is that the sacrificial system is bloody because our hands are bloody. The sacrificial system is one of death because we are people of death, even when we come to the New Testament, and it talks about church discipline. Church discipline is when somebody is proactively choosing to live a life of sinfulness while identifying as a Christian. And so they say, I love Jesus, I follow Jesus, but I'm also going to have this relationship on the side of my marriage, and that's fine. Okay? And so it lays out, and it says, first and foremost, you should go to that person personally and confront them. If they don't respond to that, bring another witness and and challenge them to step out of that, encourage them that it's not worth it, that, that this is exactly what Jesus died for, these types of things. But the final line is called excommunication. Bring them before the church and have the whole church remove them from the fellowship of the church. Why? The reason is because sin separates and this person is living in a myth that says, no, it doesn't. I can go on as if everything's normal my relationship with God my relationship with other people my relationship with my marriage is none of your business everything is fine church discipline in this excommunication says no you need to feel the consequence of sin you need to know that it's there because it's destroying your life and so there's this reminder built in however we're not looking at the sin offering here are we? It doesn't say, if anyone has committed a trespass against the Lord, let him bring an offering. It says, if anyone desires to bring a burnt offering. So what's going on here? What is the purpose of the burnt offering? To understand that, we need to keep going. First off, notice what the priest does. So, so the offerer lays his hand on and slits the throat of the animal. And then verse 5 He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's son, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the side of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, it's going to say later in Leviticus, for without blood, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin. Another thing that it makes clear in Leviticus is that there's a correlation between blood symbolically and life. Okay, and so, I mean, it's a little bit more evident here when this animal bleeds out to death, but it says, for the life is in the blood, and so it's this life for a life picture that's going on here. It's applied directly to the altar as part of uh, the offering, and then notice verse 6, then he who, the offerer, shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire do you see the division of labor sorry the division of labor the priest stokes the fire and meanwhile the offer butchers the animal cuts it into individual pieces it continues here Verse 8, and Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that's on the fire on the altar, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, um, so last piece of division of labor here, we see that the, um, uh, that the priest is putting things on the altar, but that's after the parts have been washed clean so that there's no dirt or excrement or any of that on the legs of the animals before they're offered. Um, and then the whole thing is burnt on the altar. All of it. The entirety of it. Okay. That might not seem relevant now. It will be because that's what makes this offering unique. Okay. Um, like I said, the, the title here of burnt offering is not a bad title because that's exactly what it is. The whole offering is consumed. In fact, one of the words that's used later on in this chapter for what happens with this burnt offering is later translated in the New Testament as holocaust, consumed with fire. Okay? Now, we don't generally use that word to translate the New Testament anymore because when we think of holocaust, we think of World War II. But the idea is that it's taken up completely in fire. In fact, maybe you've seen Princess Bride and you know that Andre the Giant has a holocaust cloak right? And when he puts it on, he's all, over, all covered in fire. Same idea, okay? The point is that this entire offer, offering is consumed on the altar. All of it goes up in smoke. Okay, so the point is this. Atonement is part of the offering, essential to the offering, but it's not the goal of the offering. The goal of the offering is, is like consecration. The goal of the offering is recognizing that your whole life, the one that you're living instead of this animal because it's died in your place, belongs to God. That's where this idea of the smoke ascending comes in. You may remember that the book of Exodus lays out the tabernacle as being according to the plan, according to the heavenly plan. And so the idea of the smoke is not only are you living instead of the animal, but that the animal in ascending in smoke in your place is entering into the presence of God. Okay, And so the idea here is one of consecration. It's one of desiring to offer your whole life to God. Now that's why I said it's so important that we remember who this offering is going to. This is not Israelites initiating or bargaining. This is not a way to to buy God off or set things right. This is an Israelite who says, you are so worthy, you have been so good to me, I want to dedicate again afresh, anew my life to you. But even with that good intention, there still needs to be atonement. There still needs to be a sacrifice. Okay. And so notice that it closes here with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, that will be repeated three times here. The idea here is that the sacrifice is acceptable. In this smoke is a pleasing aroma. Now, I'm just assuming that's not literally the case. Okay. The altar is basically a barbecue, and this is a whole lot of cow. That's true. But it's being burned all the way past well done and char broiled right till there's nothing left. That is not a good smell. When I was 10, I went to a farm that raised cattle to help castrate and brand the new ones. I didn't know that when I was in the car. This was sprung on me when I got there. And I've never been so afraid as when I had to wrestle a calf my size to the ground and then hold it down as it was castrated and branded. It's terrifying. Uh, It was also pretty exciting, but I I didn't sign up to do another cow after they made me do the first one. But when you're right there and they brand a cow and the smoke is in your face, it is not a good smell. It is an awful thing. But the idea here of a pleasing aroma is not just that God loves the smell of a good barbecue. It's that the offering itself is accepted, that he loves the heart of this offerer that says, yes, I want to dedicate myself to you. Yes, I want to live as unto you. Verse 10, if his gift is a burnt offering from the flock, so now it walks through it again with a sheep or with a goat, it's going to say a lot of the same things, it's going to say some things that are unique to this offering because it's a different animal, and then it's going to leave some things out that it expects us to remember from what came before. And so what does it say? He shall bring a male without blemish again. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw blood against the sides of the altar. He shall cut it into pieces with his head and its fat and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that's on the fire of the altar. But the entrails and the legs, they shall wash with water and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So it's basically the same here. It's just a different animal. And at first, we may not understand why. It, it's clearly of choice of the offer, right? If you bring a cow, if you bring a goat, if you bring a sheep, here's what it would look like. It's not till the third offering that we start to understand the why behind this. And so look at verse 14. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds then he shall bring an offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar, and wring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out the side of the altar. Okay, so do you see how this one is different? Here, the priest is the one that kills the bird, and then it he, he removes the head and he pours out the blood. It's just a little bit different. We don't see here the laying on of hands that we saw in earlier offerings. And the reason for both of these things is probably because we're dealing with just a little bird, right? It's not as easy. And so what we're seeing here is a, um, a capitulation. I think that's the word I want. For a reason, Now, we don't find out tonight what that reason is, but as we get later in Leviticus, we discover that this offering is the offering of the poor. The thing is, not everybody has a cow or even a sheep or a goat to spare. So what if the poor desire to worship God in this way, a way is made for them, okay? And so that's actually a really beautiful reality. The This offering is clearly intentionally costly. If you're going to bring a cow, it needs to be a male, right? In fact, it needs to be one without blemish, which is another way of saying your best cow, right? But if you don't have a cow, you can bring a sheep. And even if you have no livestock whatsoever, you can bring a uh, turtle dove or a pigeon, In fact, when we get to the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke, this is the offering that Joseph and Mary bring after the birth of Jesus, which tells us what about them? That they were poor. Jesus was born into a poor family. So here's the point. God desires anyone to be able to bring an offering, but at your level, it should still be costly. Later on in the book of 2 Samuel in chapter 24, uh, David really messes up he goes against what God has told him to do and he calls a census and because he's king his choices have consequences and a plague comes upon Israel and so he prays and he says God this is my fault how can I set this right and one of the things he's told to do is offer up two animals as a burnt offering And so he goes to his neighbor's place where he's been told to offer the offering and the neighbor's like, King David, what are you doing on my property? And he says, well, this is what's happening. I need to offer this. And he goes, please take two of my cows. And David refuses. He says, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And so the idea here is a juxtaposition between the fact that when we make our offerings to the Lord, they should be costly because God is worth the cost and that he desires wherever you are in your life for that that offering to be possible. Think of when Jesus is watching people give their offerings, their financial offerings at the tabernacle, at the temple in Jerusalem. And he's sitting back and he watches many give and then a woman comes, and she gives a, uh, a piece of money that is so small, we don't have a comparable currency. It's, it's like a tenth of a penny, okay? It's one, one layer do- down, and she gives that. And Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says, I tell you what, that woman gave more than anyone else we've seen give this morning. And he says, because she took all she had and gave it. Okay, in other words, God measures the gifts in terms of cost and not in terms of value, assessed value. And that's a really beautiful thing. It's a really great thing. Because it means that the rich have no advantage in the worship of God. And that the poor aren't at a disadvantage in the worship of God. And so there's an offering provided, even though some of the symbolism breaks down because it's difficult to get a bird to behave like a whole cow this capitulation is made so that even the poor can bring their offerings and express their offering. Now, here's something we need to understand. Um, uh, let's let's close it out here, uh, verse 16. He shall remove its crop with its contents. I know you don't know what that is. I had to look it up. It's the place where a bird stores its food in the back of its neck right here, okay? So, just like the intestines were washed in the biddle. Uh, in the bigger animal, the crop is removed in the bird um, and in its, uh, and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He'll tear it open by the wings, but she'll not sever it completely. Um, that's probably so that it cooks well. Okay. What happens if you only have half a pigeon? It falls between the griddle or between the bars of your barbecue, right? And so it's basically butterflying the bird so that it cooks quicker and doesn't fall through. Um, and then finally, uh, and the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that's on the fire, it's a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma for the Lord. It ends the same way. Do you see that? Every one of them is a burnt offering, a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay? Now, here's what we often misunderstand about these offerings. Rarely ever were they offered alone. Okay? And so what we're going to see tonight is that the burnt offering is always the beginning of Israel's worship. When we get to the peace offering or the fellowship offering, you can't do that until you've offered a burnt offering. When you do the grain offering in chapter 2, never once in the Old Testament do we find it being offered on its own. It's always offered on top of the burnt offering. Okay. And so what I want, want you to understand is, for the most part, the way these three free will offerings, if you desire to worship God, work, is collectively and in a specific order. Burnt offering is the beginning but not the end. And the fellowship offering is the end but not the beginning. Okay. And so there's a progression here. But it begins with this um, offering of rededication, this offering of total Surrender. This is why uh, when Paul in Romans chapter 12 talks about our Christian life in response to the gospel, he says, I beseech you therefore brethren because of God's mercies that you offer your body as a living sacrifice, which is holy and what? Acceptable to the Lord. This is the sacrifice that he's thinking about when he uses that image. And what does he say for the Christian today? He says, in the same way, that the Israelite would come and make this offering and say, my life is yours. And there's this in place of reality that your life in and of itself is tainted with sin. It's not holy and can't be a holy and acceptable sacrifice, but Jesus came and through his atonement, now we also can give our lives fully and completely to the Lord as a response to that, and it's acceptable. At whatever level... It's acceptable. Whoever you are, be you king of the land or street sweeper, it's acceptable. And it's pleasing to the Lord. It's a pleasing aroma to him. So that brings us to the second offering. Verse 1 of chapter 2. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. Okay. Now, there's some similarities and some differences here. Similarities. If anyone desires to bring, right, this is also a free will offering. Uh, similarity, it needs to be a fine flour, not not lumpy flour, okay? Now we're going to deal with this concept of grain in just a second because we can't picture, right, somebody on the way home from work swinging by QFC, picking up a gold medal bag of flour and then hitting the temple on the way home, right? That's not what's happening here. So we need to deal with that in just a second. but. It's worth pointing out right here that it still has to be fine flour. If I'm cooking for myself, I cut corners because I waited too long and I'm hungry. And so I have biscuits. If I had to take out the mortar and pestle and I need flour, it's going to be lumpy biscuits, right? I'm going to settle for oatmeal cookies instead of, any, instead of sugar cookies because, because I have to. But that's not okay here. Just like we saw in the last one, it should be costly. There's also a variety, and so we're going to see, although all of these are referred to as the grain offering, they're done in different ways. Some of them are just flour and oil. Some of them are like a pancake cooked on a griddle. Some of them are like matzah, what we eat for communion. Uh, Some of them are actually like donuts where you fry them in oil. And all of these are options, okay? But there's also a huge difference between this offering and all four of the other offerings, and that's that this one is bloodless. Right? There's no death involved. There's no animal. If you're vegan, here is the vegan offering. If you're gluten free, I'm sorry, no options. Right? But we need to recognize here that once again, the title of grain offering is totally appropriate. It's just not what it says here. The word that's used here is the word minha. Okay? And it's used really broadly of offerings, not just the grain offering as seen here, but all sorts of offerings. In fact, it's used of ones that have nothing to do with worship. In the book of Genesis, when Jacob seeks to buy off Esau with a bribe, that's a minha, that's a gift. When Solomon's rule becomes known throughout all the world and people bring him tribute, that's a gift. Okay? And so this is really the gift offering. Okay? That's the idea here. But let's talk about the reality of what it is because this gift is supposed to be grain and it's appropriate for us to ask why. It could be so many other things, right? The three wise men, it was gold, frankincense, uh, and myrrh, but here it's grain. Why was it supposed to be grain? A couple of reasons. First, remember that we're talking about an agrarian society, okay? And so grain is what everybody does. It's what everybody has. If you're not a farmer your entire occupation exists to support the farmers. So yeah, maybe you've become a miller because a miller treads the grain, right? Or you become a blacksmith because you shoe the, uh, the ox that plow the field. It's all built around this, okay? And so grain is the staple of the ancient world. Remember that we're talking about a, uh, a people here who are not dealing with some sort of currency. That will come later. But grain for this society, it's also a commodity society, okay? And so grain for eggs or, um, you know, or a calf for, for grain or these types of things, but grain is going to be the gold standard of currency, right? It's going to be the one that's at the basis. And so on top of that, it's one that everybody has. You may have more, you may have less, but the majority of your diet in the ancient world is grain-based, And so that's where this gift offering comes from. But there's one other piece that we need to nail down. It's not just a reflection of the fruits of your labor, currency. It's also a reflection of the labor itself. And that's not just true because most people were farmers or supporting the industry of farmers, but it's because, once again, flour isn't just something that you find. It's something that you make. Right? And so... Unlike the other offering where the offerer has a role, but that role begins in the tabernacle, right, with the laying of the hand and the sling of the throat, the offerer has a huge role here, and it begins in the kitchen at home. Here's the point. If we're going to understand the significance of this offering for our life today, we have to see that it's a free will offering of our work and the reward of our work. It's a gift offering. It's offering both our labors and the fruits of our labors. And remember here, it's a free will offering. It's not required. This is not a tithe. Right? Israel was required to take 10% of anything they gained, whether their animal, uh, animal offspring of their herds or the grain in their fields or anything else they planted, any consequence of their work, a tithe was brought by law. This is also not the first fruits offering. In fact, we'll see in chapter 2 that it specifically says that. I'm not talking about the first fruits offering. That was a required offering, so when the harvest came in, you would take the first portion of it and you would offer it to God out of gratitude for his provision, as a representation that all of it belonged to him. So you offer the first fruits as a picture of the whole. That's not what this is. This is if you desire to bring a gift to the Lord. And what I think is so great about this offering is that the offering is inherently broad. All work and all fruits of work are acceptable before the Lord as a gift. Now this is especially important in the modern world because um, whether you grew up in the church and so you think of two types of work, there's ministry and then there's secular work or even if you didn't grow up in the church we still tend to make a hierarchy of work and so up here are finance and tech and doctors or or maybe if you're really altruistic up here is nonprofits right and then down here there's busboys and garbage men when it when it points to the grain here and says that you can offer what you do to the lord it's baseline this is everybody's work. This is the results, whether you make millions or minimum wage. This offering is something, in fact, it's interesting, never once in this offering does it tell you how much the offering is supposed to be. It can be a flower, it can be of these, uh, uh, these unleavened donuts, it can be these pancake things, but it never tells you how much is required. Okay. It's a free will offering. Whatever you want to give. Okay? So let's go ahead and read it through. It says, his offering shall be a fine flower. It continues halfway through verse one. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. Now, as we read, I want you to notice the ingredients. We're going to see required ingredients and we're going to see unallowed, disallowed, not okay ingredients. And, and those clearly matter. Remember, I told you these are symbolic in nature. And so it says that he's, he needs to add oil and frankincense to it, and he'll bring it to Aaron's sons, the priest. He shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with, a, with the frankincense, and the priest shall burn it as a memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It's a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. Here's another difference. Whatever you bring, some of it goes to the priest's. Okay, the primary way that the um, the priests and their families were taken care of was built into the offering system. And so, if you bring a grain offering, part of it is offered to God; the rest of it goes to the priests. In fact, we'll find out later in Leviticus that when you offer a burn offering, you have to skin the animal. Who gets the skin? The priest does. Okay, the priest isn't paid for his work, um, you know, by the hour, but in the process of the work the priesthood is provided for, okay? And so here we see that's true with the grain offering. But it doesn't just have to be fine flour mixed with oil and frankincense. It can also be verse 4. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it should be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers smeared with oil, okay? And so the difference here is that this is baked, Notice that it's unleavened. That's the first no ingredient we get. And then second, it's also mixed with oil, which, by the way, is, is what makes it more bread-like and not just burnt flour. Um, but notice there's a choice here. You can bring fine flour mixed with oil. You can also bring bread. Why is that the case? Okay. For starters, there's just a variety here, but you need to recognize that these are all probably being prepared not only... For the Lord, but also as you're going about preparing for yourself, for your own meal, okay? The idea here, and forgive me if this sounds trite, but the idea here is that you're breaking bread and you think, I should give one of these to God, okay? The idea here is you're working on the flour and you take a portion of it and you go, this is going to be God's portion. It's not required, it's not a tithe, it's a free will offering, but you're inviting God into the product of your labor, Okay? And so this one is mixed, it's unleavened, and it's smeared with oil. Verse 5, if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, like a pancake, shall be a fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it into pieces and pour oil on it. It's a grain offering. Okay, there's no leaven in these pancakes, and so they break like a cracker. Um Verse 7, if your offering is a grain offering cooked in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. You'll bring the grain offering that's made of these things to the Lord, and when presented to the priest, he shall bring it to the altar. And so these ones are fried in oil. Verse 9, the priest shall take the grain offering, its memorial portion, and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It's a most holy part of the Lord's food offering. Then notice verse 11, ingredients. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey in a food offering to the Lord as an offering of first fruits you may bring them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. Okay, and so it says here, leaven's okay for the first fruits, but remember, this is not the first fruits offering. This is not a requirement. This is a free will offering. It continues here, and it says... um, Verse 13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offering, you should offer salt then we get one more possibility in terms of how the offering can go. Verse 14, if you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for the grain offering of first fruits, fresh ears roasted with fire, crushed new grain. You should put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It's a grain offering. And so, if the grain offering you're bringing is the firstfruits one, we get a few more instructions. And then finally, the summary statement again, verse 16. The priest shall burn it as a memorial portion, some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all of the frankincense. It's a food offering to the Lord. Now, the word there that we read for food can be misleading. In fact, we can assume from this word that the reason why there's uh, variety in the offerings is so God doesn't go matzah again, right? The idea here is not... Seen by the Israelites as feeding God. Although that was a common belief system in the areas around, uh, Israel constantly criticizes that belief because God doesn't need us. Right? And it, um, in fact, one of the ways we know this is the case is because one of the unique things about their offering is frankincense. Okay. Of all the ancient offerings to the gods we know that are contemporary with Israel, mingling frankincense with, with the bread offering is not done. And there's a very easy reason for that. Frankincense isn't edible. Okay. And it may be that that's even the intention here, to set apart the distinction and remind Israel in the practice of this. But as we go through Leviticus, there will be reminders of this as well. Um, but the, the point is that it is the fruits of your labor. It is what you have to give freely to the Lord. And so that's frankincense. Now, frankincense is just a category of incense. When the word is long and has that franken beginning, it's pointing to the type of trees that you take this from. Okay, But it's basically just incense. That's how it was used. It was burned Uh, you know, to create a fragrant smoke um, before the Lord. And so um, frankincense is something uh, that always, 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 always means worship. Always. Even if you go to a new age ant that you have today, incense is not merely incense, right? There's a value to it. And let me just remind you that there's nothing new about the new age. It would be better called old age because it's just paganism. It's been around way longer than Christianity. Calling it new doesn't make it such. Um, But but incense is something that's offered as worship. In fact, sometimes the prophets condemn Israel not for offering sacrifices to other gods, but for offering incense to them. That's, That's how basic, how status quo this was for religious worship. And so right in here is the recognition that this gift offering needs to be worship, okay? Here's the point, okay? Your work and the consequences of your work, your paycheck, can be offered to God. In fact, I will tell you this, your work is always worship, but that doesn't mean that it's worship God. That doesn't mean that the worship is oriented towards that. You can use your work as a worship of self, As a sense of identity that says this paycheck and all of the zeros at the end of it demonstrate my value as a person, right? And so you buy the status symbol car because you want everyone to know that you're the type of person who gets paid this type of money. That's self-worship. You can worship uh, all sorts of things with your money or even with your work. You can offer your gifts on many altars is my point. But... There is this reality, and a beautiful one, that your work, busboy or doctor, secular or sacred, can be something that's offered to the Lord. Now, it says here that it also involves oil, and oil is tremendously difficult in the symbolic sense. And the reason is because in Israel, this was kind of like coconut oil is for my wife. It's for everything, okay? Okay. And so when you read about oil, let's, let's just put this out there. At this point in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and the first two chapters of, Le- of Leviticus, there's almost a hundred references to oil already. Okay? Oil is what you put in your lamps, right? To light your house. Oil is what you treat a wound with. Oil is what you put in your bread to cook with. Oil is what you rub into your skin because you're living in a very dry climate and so it's, it's the equivalent of Lotion. Um, oil is something that you anoint yourself with like makeup to make yourself more attractive oil is clearly a picture of unity a picture of the holy spirit and a picture of joy and so when we read about oil being part of the sacrifice here it's not easy to nail down which one is the case i believe if If this isn't a precedent setting symbol, in other words, if this isn't the front door and all the other understandings of oil flow from this, if all we do is look from what's come beforehand, then the the place where oil is the most understanding so far in scripture is in the concept of joy. In fact, Jesus picks up on this. He says, when you fast, don't leave the house all gloomy and covered in ash and poorly dressed, moaning about how, well, I'd like to eat, but I've given it up for the Lord, right? This type of thing. He says, no, instead, anoint your face with oil and wear a smile and go with gladness, okay? I think that's the significance here. Even if it's not, it will preach. And so here's what I'd like to say. Your work or the portion of your paycheck or your generosity, whatever it is that you offer to the Lord, if you don't offer it joyfully, don't offer it at all. It's supposed to be part of the offering. Not just any paycheck will do, but the one that's joyfully offered. Not just any work can be unto the Lord, but the one that's done with joy. Now, all work can be redeemed. You can be a busboy unto the Lord. You can drive a taxi as unto the Lord. In fact, Paul says to the slaves in the Roman Empire, do your work not for your master, but as unto the Lord. He even says that slavery can be redeemed of value in worship. Okay? So whatever your job is, you can do it. But you can't do it as a drudgery and then offer it to God. God's not interested in your last resentful dollar. Why? Because he doesn't need it. He doesn't need your work. This is a free will offering. It says, I want to do this in a way that you're worthy of. I want to do this in response to who you are. And so it needs to be filled with joy. In fact, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians about the giving of our money he says that we should never give out of compulsion, but with gladness, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, and so, so maybe that's what the oil stands for. So there's frankincense, there's oil, and then there's salt. And salt is another hard one, because salt does a couple of different things. Salt is a preservative, right? In fact, before refrigeration, salt was the primary way we kept meat from rotting. You would salt your meat so it would last. Um, salt is also a flavoring, right? It makes something more tasty. In fact, most of us prefer our food to be salted. But here, notice what it says. It says specifically, verse 13, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. That, that gives us something to work with, okay? Okay. It's not just salt that needs to be here, but the salt of the covenant. Now, in the ancient world, in Israel and beyond it, in fact, even in parts of the Arabic world today, salt is used when you're making a covenant with another person. It's part of the symbolism of the act itself. In the same way that we would take a contract and we'd both sign on the line, a side note, that's symbolic, right? It may be legally evidenced but it's just a signature on a piece of paper it's symbolic just like the salt and so if there's two warring nomadic tribes in Arab nations sometimes they will put salt on their sword as they enter into the tent to make this peace treaty okay it may even be that that old American or English saying of he isn't worth his salt is talking about this concept right here okay the idea is one of faithfulness but one of loyalty one of keeping the covenant Okay. And so the recognition here is, uh, is that it needs to be in the context of relationship. In fact, let me just say this tonight. If you're not a Christian and you're joining us tonight, God's not really interested in your gifts. This isn't something that he laid out for the whole world and says, if you want to worship me, the covenant comes first. Israel is my people and therefore in that context they can worship. And before we talk about our faithfulness in the covenant and salt being representative that we have to remember that this is based on God's faithfulness. In fact, let me press the image. Where is this offering burned? It's laid right on top of the burnt offering. Okay. It's a response to the fact that God has given. We never initiate with God with our gifts. Not not. Not to put him in our debt, or to earn his favor, or to prove to him how great we are, and not even just because we think he's really great and we want to show it, okay? The generosity that we're talking about here is in the context of who God is and what he's done for us. It's in the context of covenant. Now, what ingredients aren't allowed? Specifically two, leaven and honey, okay? Now, leaven's the easy one because this one is used symbolically often, but also very consistently, what leaven does in a piece of bread is it causes it to inflate. It doesn't make more bread, it makes more air, but that's also what makes bread so tasty because now it's light and fluffy, okay? And so another thing to keep in mind about leaven is that it's a living, breathing thing, okay? In fact, it's it, it's, its processing of energy and the outburst of that process that creates the air that fills up a piece of bread, And so here, you've got something that's effectively corruption. That's what it is. Uh, That's why some forms of fermentation aren't so great to smell or even to taste, right? Because that's what leaven is. It's fermenting. Um, That's why if you leave it too long, you get what? Sourdough, okay? And so the idea with leaven is that it's always been this representation of corruption, And so Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They look fine on the outside, but on the inside, not so much. In fact, the Jews used leaven in a way that we don't see in the New Testament, but might be significant here. They also saw pride as a form of leaven, because as the New Testament does say, pride puffs up. It looks big, but there's not really any substance to it. And so for these reasons, leaven isn't supposed to be a part of the sacrifice and it shouldn't be a part of our work or where our paycheck comes from. Later on, the Bible talks about ill-gotten gain. God is not interested in ill-gotten gain. Like I said, God can redeem all kinds of work, but there is exceptions. Okay? If you're a mob boss and you want to worship Jesus, you've got to retire. You can't do that as unto the Lord. There are certain types of work or certain ways of working that are unacceptable that are corrupt. And it's very easy for us in our world to get caught up in the way that the industry does things and go, well, this is just the way it's done. Not if you want to do it as unto the Lord. It needs to be leaven-free. Okay? Uh, and then finally, there's not to be any honey. And this is confusing for a couple of reasons. Okay? One, because we don't know if this is talking about bee honey. In fact, it seems really unlikely that it is because it's hard to imagine that, uh, that Israel was raising bees, okay? In fact, even later in their history, we're not convinced that they had mastered that art. Now, do they come across bee honey in the Bible? Yeah, there's that occasion where Saul makes all of his army take a vow, and Jonathan, his son, doesn't know about it, and he finds some honey and he eats it. Uh, Samson finds a lion, and there's a hive of bees that are nesting in this dead lion, and he eats the honey from there, which is not just gross for Samson. It's breaking his vow, um, although it's totally gross. Um, so there's another thing this could be, which is date honey, okay? which would basically just be a sweet substance that comes from fruit. We don't know which one, and that kind of matters. Okay? If it's a sweet substance that comes from fruit, it's once again a living, corruptible, decaying thing. Okay? But here's the thing that I'm drawn to, and this is only because I've spent years watching my dad barbecue. Remember, that's what we're talking about here. Have you ever tried to barbecue with honey? You get a big flame, okay? Because it's basically sugar. And so it just burns up really quickly. And so the last time my dad made ribs with barbecue sauce, he used a tremendously sweet barbecue sauce, and the flames were huge, you know. One of the things that I think can be true about a gift offering is that, remember, this is happening publicly, Big grain, big fire. Little grain, little fire. Little grain with honey, big fire. Right? And I think there's a sensibility to that that we need to keep in mind. That the idea here is that it's not to be showy. Okay? That our work should be done as unto the Lord, but it should also be done in a way that doesn't draw attention to ourselves. Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify God. There's a way to do work that points to him, and there's a way to do work that points to us. And so it may be that that's what honey is talking about here. It just looks bigger than it is. It's an artificial sweetener of your work and of your your wealth, right? Um, So that's how the offering is supposed to work. Now, in a sense, all of these offerings point to Jesus, but this one in a kind of unique way. It is true that Jesus in John chapter 6 points back to this time, to the manna incident and specifically, and says, I am the bread from heaven. When Isaiah says, come and eat bread without money, he says, buy bread without money. God is the great giver. Okay? And so there's a sense where this offering perfectly pictures what God has done in the fact that he has given to us. But remember that this is also coupled with the burnt offering. It's coupled with atonement. It has this reality in it, and so it's responsive to this, but it really does point to what we do. In fact, in the New Testament, twice, this offering is clearly in the mind of New Testament authors. Turn to the book of Hebrews and look at chapter 13. Since we're getting into Leviticus, let me remind you that if you're interested in studying deeper or studying ahead, you should be reading in Hebrews as well. Hebrews is a New Testament sermon that explains the significance and the transcendence of what Jesus has done in relationship to the Old Covenant, including the priesthood and the sacrifices. And so notice what he says here. Sorry, I didn't fully look at my reference. I just checked the chapter. Notice what he says here in verse 15. He says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of the lips and acknowledge his name and then listen to this, verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are what? Pleasing to God. Okay? And so the author of Hebrews makes it explicit here. He says that the gift offering that was pleasing to God is something we do now by doing good and sharing what we have. Now, one of the things this sacrifice does is it points to the problem. And so the problem in the first one is that we've been living unto ourselves, that if left to our own devices, we make life about us. Now, if there was no God, that would maybe be fine, but if there really is a creator, and everything we have comes from him, that changes the formula. With the second offering, what it shows that's wrong with humanity is how self-centered we are, how selfish we are. All of us are born with our hands tightly fisted with all that we have. And this regular and routine offering is not so much about being generous to God because he could really use a hand. It's about being generous to God because he wants to make you generous. And so it's like the rehab of going through, you know, these arthritic muscles until your hand opens willingly and freely. In fact, let's look at another New Testament author, this time the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians chapter 4. I think when it comes to what we do with our money as Christians, we have a lot of baggage. And there's no better places to clear out that baggage to better understand what giving looks like for a Christian than 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and Philippians 4. And so here in Philippians 4, Paul has written the letter to the church in Philippi basically as an extended thank you note because they have sent him a financial gift. And in chapter 4, he finally gets down to it and he thanks them explicitly for it. Okay? And it's really a striking passage because the way he views that gift is so interesting. The first thing he says is, I'm so glad you sent a gift, not because I needed it. And that's not an expression of self-sufficiency, It's a recognition that need is not what makes him thankful. It's not just that you met my need. And he goes on to describe the reality of giving in his perspective. And so notice what he says here about the offering in chapter 4. We'll pick up in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound and in every circumstance I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. The first thing he says there is that he appreciates not that they alleviated his need, but they became needy themselves. They participated in his need. They had a fellowship in his suffering is what it says here. But he continues here and notice what he says. Verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So the second thing he says is, when you support the work of the ministry, that's to your account. Yes, you can't Maybe travel across the world and tell people about Jesus, but you can send your money to do so, and that matters. You can participate in missions financially, and he says the fruit will abound to your account. Notice this one in verse 18, I have received full payment and more, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What we do with our money and what we do with our, our, our work is once again something that can be a fragrant and acceptable sacrifice to God, an act of worship. So, that's the gift offering. And like I said, liturgically, what God is trying to do is develop a loving relationship with God, a loving relationship with others, which is always birthed out of true generosity, not reciprocity. We had a seminar yesterday on faith and work, and one of our speakers was talking about a book that explained um, that there's really two types of people in any employment. There are givers and there are takers. And then later on, he modifies that, and he says, actually, most of us are matchers which means we give knowing that it's going to work out in the end in our balance. But what this is, is just giving. What could say that more than watching what you've just given burned up in smoke, right? It's just giving, but that's what makes it a participating, loving act. Generosity is something that just spills over out of life as an act of love. And so that's part of their worship. But once again, that's not where it ends, most Israelites are not going to dust off their hands, wash up, and head home at this point. These things are all preemptive to the final offering. And so look at chapter 3, verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of a peace offering... If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Still without blemish, but this time male or female is fine. We'll see why in a second. Verse 2. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons and the priests shall throw blood against the sides of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fats on the entrails. So once again, we have atonement. We have blood, we have a laying on of the hand, but here it starts to get very specific about the fat. We'll see why in a second. Verse 4, the two kidneys with the fat that's on them at the loins, the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering, which is a wood offering of fire. It's a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now that's just the fat that's being talked about here. Continue, verse six, if his offering is a sacrifice, a peace offering of the Lord is an animal from the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offers a lamb for his offering, then he shall offer it before the Lord, lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's son shall throw its blood against the side of the altar. Then from the sacrifice of peace offering, he shall offer as a food offering to the Lord, it's fat. He shall remove the whole fat tail, cut off close to the backbone and the fat that covers the entrails and all the fats on the entrails. Okay, interesting side note fact. Why does it talk about a fatty tail here? It's a specific type of sheep that was common in Israel that has this very large tail. When we think of sheep, we just think of that little floppy tail, but this would have been one that could weigh actually a couple of pounds, just a very thick tail. And so that's what it's referring to here. Once again, verse 10, and the two kidneys with the fat that's on them, the loins and the long lobe of the liver, and he shall remove with the kidneys, and the priest shall burn it on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. Once again, similarities and differences. Similarities still for atonement, still identifying with the sacrifice, still slaughter, still some of it burned on the altar, but just the fat. Next, verse 12, if his offering is a goat... Then he shall offer it before the Lord and lay his hand on its head and kill it in front of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar and he shall offer from it as an offering for a food food offering to the Lord, the fat covering the entrails and the fat that's on the entrails, the two kidneys with the fat that's on them and the loins, the long lobe of the liver he shall remove with the kidneys and a priest shall burn them as a food offering and a pleasing aroma. All the fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood now this offering as it stands sounds like a fat offering but as we get into chapters 6 and 7 we'll discover that the reason it's called the peace offering or sometimes the fellowship offering is because the rest of the meat is eaten both by the priests and by the offerers. okay so nobody eats the burnt offering the priests partake of the grain offering but only the priests but the priests the offerer's and the offerer's friends partake of the peace offering. Okay? The fat, though, is gone. It's to be offered entirely, and it says, a statute forever, you will not eat the fat. Why? Well, a couple of times in the Old Testament, it uses fat metaphorically in a way that I think is helpful. You may have heard of the phrase, the fat of the land. That's a Bible phrase. What is the fat of the land? It's the best part of the land. Okay, And so, so it's, the beautiful part. It's the part that's fruitful and the best part. And so here, offering the fat to the Lord is not out of health concerns so that you have the leaner portions. It's a first portion. It's the best portion, okay? And so this is offered to the uh, to God, but the rest is eaten by the offerer and his family or his friends, whoever he wants to bring, as we'll see later. Here's the point. This is called the peace offering or the fellowship offering because what they're doing is effectively having a meal with God. They're enjoying the relationship that they have with God. Okay? And so there's first this alignment of dedication. There's the free will offerings. But the pinnacle of Israel's worship is here in the fellowship offering to enjoy the presence of God. This is... To some degree, remember the tabernacle is like the house of God, it's like coming over to God's house for dinner. The significance here is that they were to not merely have some sort of symbolic relationship with the Lord, but enjoy it, enter into it, that it would deepen over time. And so... The goal here is not merely that their relationship with God would be set right, but they would actually have a relationship, that they would enjoy it. And when we get to the New Testament, it picks up on this idea of fellowship, and it does it in a very interesting way. It does it primarily in the meal of communion. Right? When we partake of the body and blood of Jesus in communion, we are having fellowship with God and with one another. In fact, listen to what John says in 1 John. This is how he views the sacrifice of Jesus. He says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Oh, no, I went earlier. I'm sorry. Verse, verse, boy, that's a long verse. Verse 2 the life of Jesus was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which was uh, with us, with the Father and made manifest to us that, so that, why did Jesus come? So that, which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so why did Jesus come? So that we may enjoy a relationship with God and with one another. And when he picks up on this term, he's picking up on this old festival. In fact, the fellowship he envisions here is not one without sacrifice. Notice what he says um, first off in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Can't have fellowship and sin. Verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. To nail it down, look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. That's sacrificial language. And not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. And so he sees here on the back of, or on the consequence of Jesus' sacrifice, a fellowship, a relationship, an entering in with the Lord, an enjoyment, okay? That's why Jesus says at one place in the Gospel of John, I came so that you might have life and have it abundantly. In another place he says, uh, for this is eternal life, that you would know the Father and the Son whom he has sent. What is salvation as the Bible envisions it? A loving, full relationship with God. And so that was represented in Israel's worship and it's available to us today because of what Jesus has done. And so what we see in this free will offering is, is them choosing to worship God, recognizing that they can lay their lives, their work their uh you know their money their gifts on the altar and then enjoying partaking with them and with others who are in fellowship with God so let's pray God often we think Leviticus is foreign because of the sacrifices and that's true it's easy to read Leviticus and go i'm thankful for jesus cuz i don't have to go through all this stuff But it's more than that, Lord. Part of the reason the book is so foreign is because we live in a different world where all these things don't carry the value and the significance anymore. But more importantly than that, they've all been fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So as we study them, we get a better understanding of what you desire for us. We get a better understanding of what you've done for us in Jesus and even for what you want us to enjoy in our life as Christians. I pray that you would help us um, to offer these offerings in the way that New Testament talks about, the offering of our lips of praise, the offering of our good works and the sharing of our things, uh, the climbing up on the altar and offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, that we would be worshipers of you because of who you are as revealed in Jesus
1: Christ. We pray this in your name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.